Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. Scripture reading today is taken from Luke 5, verse 17 to 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me invite you to pray with me for the Lord's help as we look to his word. Uh, God, we come before you and we come knowing and trusting that you are a good God, that you love us, that you want to help us. And we pray for that help. We pray that you would help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to see wonderful things in your word, to be grown in our understanding and appreciation and even in our own experience of your goodness as you show it to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those that don't yet know you here in this congregation and those that have just come in curious about you for the first time, whatever the reason might be. Lord, would you work in their lives? Would you start to show them that maybe you're a little better than they thought you were? Lord, that you would draw them to yourself to be saved, to be filled with worship and adoration of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in our third sermon in our series this morning called The Goodness of Jesus. And we're in this series called The Goodness of Jesus because we have a problem. You have a problem this morning. I have a problem this morning. And our problem is this. You and I live our lives constantly searching and striving and looking for ways to satisfy our heart's desires. We go about our lives looking and searching and striving for this satisfaction, kind of like the hamster on the wheel. We're running and running and running, and we find that that thing we're looking for is elusive. We don't get very far. We don't 
get to the satisfaction that we're aiming at, no matter what we're looking to find it in. Some of us chase the satisfaction and the the fulfillment that our souls long for by striving after more money, cash, right? It'll work. It'll fill me up. It'll make me whole. Some of us do it by putting all of our hope for a fulfilled life in a relationship. We look at a particular person. We think if only I were with them or had that friendship or whatever, then I'll be happy. Some of us do it in a career, looking to climb the ladder. When I get to that next level, it'll be enough. Some of us do it in academic achievement. Hey, if I only finish my undergrad, it's going to be awesome. And then if I get the grades that I want and I get to the next program, then finally I'll have it. And then, and then, and then, and then, and it stays elusive. Still, others of us are just more simple. We like it straightforward. Give me comfort and give me pleasure. If I can find those things in various ways, then I'll be happy and I'll be satisfied. But the more that we look, the more we're just trying to strive to find the thing that will fill the hole in our heart and satisfy our desires. And the problem we have is that we weren't made for any of the things I've just described. You weren't created, you weren't made lovingly by a good God to find your fulfillment in those things. The Bible teaches that All our capacity for love and for desire was meant to be satisfied in one place above all. You know what that is? It's in relationship with the incomparably good God who loves us and who made us. It's to find our lives and our hearts and our desires satisfied in who he has revealed himself to be in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know the good news this morning is that this God who made you and loves you, he wants to give himself to you. He's not trying to stay distant. He wants to bring you to himself so you would know the goodness of Jesus. That's why we're in this series, to know the goodness of Jesus. Because all we need more than anything is to be found as worshipers, knowing him and uh, adoring his preeminent goodness, having our hearts arrested from all the wrong things or trying to plug into the hole to find the satisfaction and taken away from those things and then fixed instead and focused on the one that we were created for. That's why we're in this series. We'd be looking at the goodness of Jesus. And like I've said before, he's so much better than you yet realize. I promise you, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. It's been 50 years. You still don't know how good he is. I don't care if you just walked in here, like I said, in curiosity, and you've never really given him much thought. He's better than you realize. And something for us this morning then in this passage, because this morning we're going to look at another beloved story from the life of Jesus to see his goodness. This time from the gospel of Luke and Luke chapter five, and the story of the healing of the paralytic. In this story where we see this paralyzed man who gets healed by Jesus, we'll see Jesus' remarkable goodness in three ways. First, in the way that he has mercy towards the outcast. Second, in the way that he has wisdom, great wisdom towards all who oppose him. And in his glory as our great God and Savior. So these three things, we're going to see the goodness of Jesus. And we'll start uh, in point one. But as we start, we need to know the context. 
Our story takes place after Jesus was baptized in our first sermon in this series. It takes place after Jesus went out into the wilderness and the second series that Jonathan preached last week. And then after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he goes into a period of his ministry where he taught in the region of Galilee, taught and healed. And our story happens at a time when this news about Jesus' goodness is starting to spread like wildfire. And Luke talks about this just before the passage that Elisha read in chapter 5, 15. And he writes this. But now even more, the report about Jesus, Jesus' goodness, it went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So great crowds, they're hearing about Jesus. They're coming in droves to see Jesus. And that's when our story takes place. So let's keep reading in verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Another good translation for that use of man would be friend. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the first thing we need to understand in this passage is that life as a paralytic in the first century in Judea did not mean that you just couldn't walk. Life as a paralytic at the time of Jesus meant that you were an outcast in society. In the law, in the Jewish law, you couldn't be a priest. In this little breakaway sect called the Qumran community, you couldn't be admitted into the community at all. And in daily life for the common people, you were on the margins. You were pushed out of regular community life. So when we read verse 19, we need to read it a little bit more pointedly than I think we're accustomed to reading it. 19 says this, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. We need to read that not just that the crowd is really, really, really big. Because after all, they made it to the top of the house, (laughs) right? They got there. But that the crowd was actively keeping this paralyzed man from Jesus. They didn't want him to come near. He didn't belong near Jesus. And he was on the outside of society. So we're going to keep you over here and not bother us with Jesus in here. Now, before we get too judgy with the crowds, right? It's easy to, to hear that and to read, oh, I would never have done that. You know, that's not me. I think there's a lot more in the crowds in us than we realize. I think we're a lot like them. I'll tell you a story from my own life, a personal and a difficult story from a time in my life when I was 17. Um, When I was 17, I I lived for a few months with my family in Africa, living at an orphanage with kids with AIDS. And while I was there, one of the things that I was struck by over and over again was the way that my saintly mother and my saintly sisters would spend time just diving into relationship with these sick kids with AIDS. And they just embrace them and hug them and hold them. But I'm ashamed to say that my 17-year-old heart was all too glad 
to leave every day and to go and work somewhere else. Because I didn't want to be near. It kind of freaked me out. You know, it was a little bit, bit too much and, and I, I didn't want to see the suffering. And so I withdrew from it. I withdrew from it. And even if you're not like my 17-year-old self, because by the grace and the mercy of God, he's been working on you, filling your heart with compassion and changing you, what we all need to recognize is that naturally we're a lot like my 17-year-old self. All of us. Naturally, who we are as human beings are people that do not move close to the physically and obviously suffering and diseased and disabled. We're those that withdraw from them in our sin. That's who we are naturally speaking. That has to be overcome in us to be changed in us. And I bring that up because Jesus' incomparable goodness is so often seen in the Bible by the contrasts, by the way that his incomparable goodness is contrasted from us in our sinfulness. And it's there in that space, in the difference that we see his glory. And his goodness. So, so here we see that he's so good because he isn't like you, naturally speaking, and he isn't like me, naturally speaking, and he isn't like the crowds. We reject one another all the time for all kinds of reasons and push people outside, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus welcomes all who come to him to be saved. It's good news. No matter how sinful we are, no matter how we've shipwrecked our lives, no matter how much of an outcast we are in our own society, Jesus will never reject us when we come to him. I think this story in the Bible is put here in God's kindness to confront our unbelieving hearts. See, the problem isn't that Jesus isn't as good as he ought to be. The problem is that we don't believe how good he really is. When we look at this scripture, we simply don't believe that he's as good and as welcoming as he says he is. And that's why this story's here, to confront that in us. And there's so many more layers to how welcoming Jesus is, even in this story. Uh, For example, I'll show you another one. Most likely, this house was Simon Peter's house. That was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And for his ministry period in Galilee, he probably lived at Simon Peter's house. There's lots of stories about that in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. So think about how welcoming Jesus is being here. And again, contrast it with me, just as one example. If you arrive too early to my house, I won't let you in the door. If you come in and you ring and I'm not up, I'm sorry, I'm going to ignore my phone. And it's convenient because there's a buzzer to get in and it rings and I just pretend that you didn't do that. And if you stay too late, what happens is that I'll be like, you know, it's time for you to go home. It's time for you to leave now. Thank you so much for coming. We had a lovely time. The door's here. Your shoes are right here. No problem. But not Jesus. Because you got to picture this. We learned from Mark chapter 3 that there is a time, probably again this house, uh, Jesus got so busy with these crowds, he didn't have time to eat. Right? So they arrived before breakfast. I think it's okay to imagine that. And they bang down the door and he gets up and he doesn't shoo them away. He welcomes them in, in his mercy and his compassion. He teaches them. 
The gospel says that he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They need instruction on how to live and where to get life. He cares for them. And as he's teaching and healing, this crazy thing happens. The social outcast, paralytic, and his friends have the audacity to dig through the ceiling. <laughs> right? I don't think teachers love getting interrupted in their lectures, generally speaking. But here Jesus is teaching. And then the dust starts falling and the noise increases. And maybe a tile or two fall through and smash on the floor. And it's all very disruptive. And what I find incredible is that he doesn't yell. <laughs> Isn't he yelled, that's it. I've had it up to here with you. Get out of my house. <laughs> what are you doing? No, he looks on the paralytic and he friends and his friends and, and he looks at them with the look that I think only God incarnate could possibly have, the look of the all-knowing one and he sees into their souls. He knows why they're there. He sees how deeply they trust that Jesus will help us. If no one else will help us, Jesus will help us. And he says to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, let's be real. That's not what we were expecting. At first, it kind of seems when we read this story, let's be real, let's be honest, that Jesus missed something. Right? Like his friends are like, hey, that's real cool, Jesus. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, can I, but also there's this mat and he's lying down still. Could you maybe deal with that too? Like the healings, you know, the, the forgiveness is great and all. <laughs> but can you deal with this? It feels like Jesus miss something. But again, it only feels like he missed something because we don't yet realize how good Jesus is. It only feels like he missed something because we haven't yet realized that God in his goodness never gives second best gifts. God in his goodness only ever gives first best gifts. It's who he is. And we think that he missed it because we don't understand sin. We don't understand that sin, far from being a secondary problem in our lives, is our primary problem. I was thinking about this and something that happened to me last summer. Uh, last summer, I'm out there in the, the garden. I have this big deck and I'm trying to work on, on the garden. There's lots of planter boxes. And I started to notice that there were ants. So I put some ant traps out to deal with the five or 10 ants that I saw. And they increased and I saw more. And eventually a couple of them started to come into the threshold of my house. But oh my goodness, what's going on? Bought some ant spray, spray it liberally over everything. But it wasn't until I took my planter boxes apart and remove the ant colony that was hundreds of thousands strong, load by load into my elevator and into my van to dump it into the forest of Spirit Park, that I solved my ant problem and that my garden began to flourish again, free from all the corrupting influence of ants eating everything that I was growing. I had to go radical. I had to go apocalyptic for the ant colony anyway. 
But similarly, unless we deal with sin that's at the root of our problems, every healing and every temporary solution in our lives is just ant spray on the surface. Just think about the paralytic. What would have happened if Jesus just healed him? Well, he would have been healed. He would have walked home by himself. He would have gone to bed unforgiven by God. He would have gone to bed and woke up the next morning unchanged by the mercy and the love and the grace of God that only forgiveness can bring. And then one day he would have died again. And he would have died without the hope of resurrection life with Jesus Christ. And then after death, he wouldn't have entered into this resurrection life and relationship with God. He would have entered into the judgment of God and be condemned for his sin. You see, sin isn't a secondary problem. It's a primary problem. And because Jesus said those words, your sins are forgiven you, what happened was that in that moment, Jesus welcomed this sinful man who was separated from relationship with God and his goodness back into relationship with God and his goodness. And because of Jesus' forgiveness, the paralytic would one day be united to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit after Jesus had died and been raised again and ascended to the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit onto his church. And in that moment, he would have been filled with the everlasting and unstoppable power in life of God Most High, taking up residence in his life, changing him, altering him, preparing him for eternity with God. A life so powerful and unstoppable that there would be a day that would come when together that paralytic with us who have trusted in Jesus will together be raised with Jesus Christ. Raised when Christ returns to live in a world forever free from sin and from suffering and death. So in this way, even before the paralytic was healed, the paralytic received the greatest gift that Jesus could give. When he looked at him and said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. So I don't know what you're going through today. And I don't have the solution to all your problems. But I do know a savior who won't turn you away if you come to him. I know one who won't reject you no matter how badly you've screwed up today or this week or in your life. One who sees into the depths of your soul, and even though he sees what's really there remarkably, he still passionately loves you. One who is able to save you from your own sin and its consequences. So the question I have for this morning is this. Why don't you come to Jesus? If you need a friend to carry you, can we be that friend for you? We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to, to bring you into his presence, that you would know his forgiveness. Now, I mentioned that Jesus' popularity has been growing at this point in his ministry when the story takes place. But with that popularity, opposition has also begun to increase. And it's in the context of this increasing opposition to Jesus that we see the next astonishing thing about Jesus' goodness. And that leads us to our second point, the goodness of Jesus' wisdom towards those who oppose him. So look at verses 21 to 24. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of, the, of Man, by the way, if, if you don't know, that's Jesus, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. So he's saying that you may know that the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus, not me, Jesus, him, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. This is the first episode in Luke that features the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you've read any of the gospel stories, any of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, you know that the Pharisees are a key character as a whole in the story. And this is the first time Luke mentions them. And in fact, Luke made sure that we'd see that they're around by writing at the beginning of the narrative in verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So this whole sent out, missing the words, not going to my mind, group became of the Pharisees and religious teachers to come and observe Jesus. What was happening was that at the time Jesus' fame was increasing, the religious elite began to take notice. And they were like the religious police of Jesus' day. And they wanted to make sure that Jesus didn't teach or do anything that was against what their strict beliefs about Judaism were. Jesus can't step left, he can't step right. You've got to stay right exactly in line or we will get him. And they're there with that kind of a critical eye. They're there peering through the windows of the house, I imagine. Big open windows looking through, just observing everything that's happening to make sure it goes okay. And they say, Jesus, do this crazy thing. They see him tell the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. And they're outraged. They're outraged. The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 21, began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a good question. It's a good question. If you were in a situation where someone did something wrong to you, and then another person who was like sitting, say, at a coffee shop and observed the situation, turned over and casually says, Hey, that's all right, man, I forgive you. Like it just feels so wrong. It's like, what authority do you have to forgive? Only the offended party can forgive. So who is Jesus getting in the way here and saying this paralytics man is forgiven? And the Pharisees are right. Only God can forgive sins. Because Christ said, this passage teaches us a profound biblical truth. And it's this. Our sin isn't primarily against any other person that we wrong by our actions. It's not. We certainly hurt others by our sin all the time. But your sin isn't primarily against those people. Our sin, whether the lie that you told to your spouse this morning or that sin that you buried so deep you hope no one will ever see, your sin is always primarily against God. Why is that? How is that the case? It doesn't seem right. It's the case because God is the one who made you. Not just you, but all the people in this room that you're sitting next to in this entire world. He gave you this planet that you live and breathe in and exist in. 
And everything that you do in sin, it brings destruction into this world in little bits or in big bits. And he's the one who made you not so that you would wreck this world and hurt the other people that he loves and he cares for, including yourself, hurting your own soul by your sin. No, what he wants for you is to live richly and deeply in relationship with himself so that what would happen is that you would grow in obedience and love for him. And that what would come out of your life wouldn't be things that cause harm, but would be more life for others, more blessing, the rich goodness of all of his purposes that he has for you fulfilled. And we sin, we corrupt all of that. And our sin then is not first against all these secondary things. Firstly, it's against God. The Pharisees asked the right question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And their problem was that they didn't understand who Jesus was. He wasn't just a man, not just a teacher, but incarnate God come to save us from our sins. They didn't understand secondarily in their own religious hypocrisy that they needed his forgiveness. The Pharisees, especially in Luke's gospel, have a significant problem. They're a foil against all those who run to Jesus to be saved and forgiven because they continuously refuse to admit their sinful need of forgiveness. Like, no, it's not for us. And then Luke 5, 30 to 32, after our passage, we read this. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you with them, Jesus? Get away from those people. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I love alarms. It's great. Always a funny moment of levity. Uh, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, he's just confronting them. You guys just don't see your need. This is why the story of the paralytic shows us the goodness of Jesus' wisdom, because he knows their problem. He knows the Pharisees don't believe they need to be forgiven. And he knows they don't realize who he is. The second person of our triune God come to save us from our sins. But in his goodness, what Jesus does is in his wisdom, he brings the Pharisees to a place of confrontation. A place where they must make a decision about who he really is. A place where they must either see him for who he is and receive the forgiveness that he offers or turn away from him. Look at verses 22 to 23. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, you, or to say, rise and walk. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You see, Christ City, Jesus, in his wisdom, confronted the Pharisees to give them an opportunity to turn to him for salvation. It's the kind of God that he is. In Christ City, Jesus is so good and wise that he knows your hearts too, just like he knew the hearts of the Pharisees before they spoke. 
He knows your doubts and he knows your struggles. He knows your hesitancy to come to him, to trust him as a savior that he is. And he's wise because day by day, even into your life, he brings situations that are designed to confront you. To confront you with your sin. Situations to draw you to himself to be forgiven. To draw you to himself to be forgiven and best of all in that place of forgiveness to be brought back into the satisfaction of joyful relationship with him. The question is, how will you respond to this wise Savior? Will you resist his wise and loving confrontation? Or will you respond to him in trust? I want to encourage you, don't see these situations that you resist as just bad things. See the loving hand of God in them meant to draw you to himself, to know more of the richness and the goodness and the mercy that's in Jesus. See, he wants your eternal good. That's who he is as Savior. And that leads us to our last point, the point we see in the story of the paralytic, Jesus' remarkable goodness in his glory as our Savior God. So our third point, his goodness and his glory as our Savior God. Look at verses 25 to 26. And immediately Jesus rose up before them, oh, the paralytic, sorry, rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Just unbelievable things. And Jesus' words, the paralytic was healed immediately and the crowds glorify God. They're filled with awe. I think in other words, they worshiped God. They gave him praise and thanks as God deserves. And that is exactly the right response that comes from an encounter with Jesus. You see, Jesus was God incarnate come to earth for a purpose. He taught, he healed, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, not just to show us that he was a good moral teacher or a wise esoteric guy in the wilderness, but that he was God. To show us the goodness and the glory of God himself who has come to us in his tender mercy to deliver us from all the suffering that we have in our lives due to our slavery to sin. See, Jesus came to show us that, that God is here and he loves you. He's come in mercy and compassion to you to save you from your sin. And in fact, earlier in Luke 4, Jesus essentially says this, and he sets us forth in a kind of manifesto about who he is in Luke 4, 18 to 19, where he stands up in front of a crowd at a religious synagogue, and he quotes from Isaiah 61 about who he is. Opens the scroll, looks up the crowd and says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So guys, I'm here. I'm here. God has come to rescue and deliver you. Notice the words that he said. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captive to what? To slavery? Well, yes, but slavery to sin. 
captive to the greatest slavery that we face that produces, like we've been talking about, all this suffering and disease and death and sorrow. And when Jesus then forgave the paralytic sins and healed him, what the crowds witnessed, what they saw, was the glory of our Savior God who came to deliver us and to set us free. No longer living in slavery, but living instead, notice the words at the end there, in the year of the Lord's favor. Freed and rescued from sin to be brought near to live in the favor of God. And that experience of seeing all of that had filled them with awe and with worship. You know, I think those crowds, as we've said, were just like us. And I think the problem, other from the revelation of who God is and the goodness and the glory of, of him as Savior, apart from that revelation, I think they probably didn't believe that God was as good as the Bible said he was. They probably didn't think that, that he would fulfill the prophecies that he made in the earlier portions of Scripture. They didn't believe that he was that good. When does God show them? As he comes, as, as God incarnate comes to them and heals this man, he shows them not that God's vindictive, not that God's indifferent towards their suffering, but that God in his mercy and compassion showed up. He came to deliver and to heal and to save. See, Jesus shows us definitively that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the crowds respond to seeing this Savior God with amazement. Amazement sees them all. They glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. See, Christ City, there's only one appropriate response for seeing Jesus. It's to join in with the crowds in their worship. So what I invite you into this morning is to, to come and to give thanks and praise and to worship Jesus. To give glory to God that, that he's far more full of tender mercy towards you than you thought. That he's wiser than you've ever given him credit for. He's doing things in your life that you would never have imagined. That he's gloriously good as our Savior God. He's inviting you to turn away from all those things that you try to satisfy your soul with and again towards him to be satisfied in relationship with the one you were made for. Can we pray together? God, we come to you and we confess we're just like those uh, that the prophet Jeremiah describes who are thirsty and yet we, we dig out holes for ourselves in the desert that just get filled up with dust and we think, oh, this will satisfy my soul. And we keep on digging and keep on getting more thirsty and more dusty. But God, would you lead us back to the fountains of living water, to the fountain of living water, to Jesus himself, so that our souls would be satisfied in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.